0: You're listening to The Pandemic Podcast, where we equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Botker, and I'm joined by two good friends, Dr. Steven Kissler, an epidemiologist at the Harvard School of Public Health, and Dr. Mark Kissler, who is a doctor at the University of Colorado Hospital. Hey guys, happy, check this out, I've been working all week on this, happy Thursday. <laughs> I got the day. I got that's the right. day. good work. That's good. <laughs> Thank man, you. Man, they all seem to run together these days. Yeah, it? yeah it I know. This is enough. this this is why I get paid a big bucks. <laughs> I can every once in <laughs> while get what day we're on. How's oh it going?
1: Good, good. We're uh, yeah. it's it's snowing again here in Denver. Oh, you know, don't talk it about it, and man. And yeah, that's. If I can rough. put a
0: if I can put a photo in the show notes, I will. But it was <laughs> yesterday. It was dry and you know somewhat wonderful, and now it's. I mean, hey, people who love snow. Go get him, Tiger. Uh, but uh, I'm ready for spring, uh, especially since we're already kind of in the house now. I feel even more isolated. I'm yeah. like, I don't want to go out. It's cold, and our boys do so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, the uh, huge uh, again, congratulations to Stephen on his publication. It is he has gone crazy over the past couple of days. Uh, I, I had no idea that if you get published in this this thing that people read it within the first two minutes of being published. And then the next day, there's just things all over wanting Stephen for interviews. So if you haven't seen it, he's been on CNN uh, a couple of times. And uh, just as we were um, trying to prepare, got another request uh, in Italy, right? You said? Right. Yeah. So Fun stuff. So crossed crossed some waters there. So uh, how are you feeling, Steven? You feeling a little, little tired?
2: Yes, I'm. I'm absolutely exhausted. This is <laughs> this is not not what I signed up for when I decided to be an infectious disease epidemiologist. <laughs> sure. you know, usually, people go into math, you know, sort of expecting that they're yeah. going to be as far removed from social interaction as possible. So, totally. uh Yeah, but it's uh, it's been a busy couple of days, but um, but it's also been really good to see some interest in the work. Oh,
0: well, I I admire your courage, Stephen. I would be just. If- uh, yeah, if CNN called me, I'd be like, um, uh, I'm sick. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, that thought um, crossed my mind. Yeah, sure, sure. Oh man, well, uh, Mark is with us as well today. I'm excited. He's going back to the hospital tomorrow, right?
1: That's right. Yeah, so tomorrow morning we'll be on for a week and uh, staffing one of the COVID services. We'll see how that goes. Uh, been in touch with some of the providers who are on and kind of getting, um, you know, making sure that, uh, everything's up to speed and we're, we're ready to hit the
0: ground running when we get there. So, man, well, I'm excited to hear how things are going in the hospital. Uh, I have no idea how we'll hear from him again, uh, when he's gone for the week, but we'll try to carve out something during that time to yeah. to get him on, on, on Monday as well. But before we get going, a few things, again, we could always use reviews. Those are so helpful. iTunes, uh, on pandemic, please do that. We'd love it. Anything that deserves, if you have an extra minute, leave a comment, we'd great it. We would grade it. I don't know what that means. Uh, we'd love that. We'd love that. Uh, also, as well, if you would love to help support us as little as $5 a month, patreon.com. So dot com slash pandemic podcast. Uh, it helps us tremendously get some more audio, some more uh, technical support, uh, so we can have more time on forming content. So I'm not at the last minute trying to find things to chat about and help structure things as well. So if you can do that, uh, patreon.com slash pandemic podcast. Okay. So let's get into the news. Uh, the biggest thing I want to talk about, uh, the, it, this is clearly making headlines everywhere, uh, but the U S removing, uh, funding from the WHO. And so I'll kind of start with Stephen here. And, you know, I, I don't really know. I mean, this is all these things are new to me, right? I mean, I didn't know that, this is my ignorance, I didn't know the WHO even existed before this pandemic, right? It's just, it's mm-hmm. just something that, so now all these things are coming to the forefront, you know. Can you help explain, like, what does the WHO do? What is its role, generally speaking? And then how is, how, by the US removing these this funds, which is a significant amount of money, how does that change the game for the WHO? And what does that mean for us, like, as well, in relationship to the to the WHO?
2: Yeah, so I mean, I think we can go back and um, talk about a little bit just sort of where the WHO comes from. Um, So it it sort of sprang out of the same sort of spirit that formed the UN, which was just after World War II, essentially countries coming together and realizing that – That we need cooperation on a lot of different levels, and that's political cooperation, economic cooperation, and in this case, public health cooperation, because as as we all know, the health of nations is all very intertwined. um, And we see that most clearly in an event like the one we're in right now when there's a pandemic. So the World Health Organization was founded precisely to monitor for these sorts of international health threats and to contribute to, to response across the world. And uh, one of the key places where the World Health Organization Really contributes a lot of its resources is to countries that don't have robust enough medical and public health systems uh, to protect themselves from these kinds of threats. And so, essentially, um, I mean, by by pulling out funding from the World Health Organization, that'll have all sorts of knock on effects. But but I think one of the most important ones is that a lot of countries that just don't have as much public health structure won't be able to mount as efficient of a response to the coronavirus as they would be able to otherwise. And of course, that's a problem. I mean, it's a huge problem—not just for those countries themselves, but also for us, because we're going to keep importing cases from all around the world. So, I mean, fundamentally, there's—you know—I think that there's a real danger, and I I think it's frankly true that it's—it's sort of shooting ourselves in the foot um, because because of the way that that countries are intertwined. So, I mean, and a lot of the sort of the, the rhetoric around this has been that you know the World Health Organization had you know made some missteps early in the epidemic, and like. I think that's, you know, certainly up for debate. I mean, that's certainly true on some levels that all of us made missteps at the beginning of this outbreak, because it's a new virus that we had never seen before. And we didn't know what was going to happen. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty, And it's very, you know, the World Health Organization in some senses is the organization that that where, where the buck stops, right? And and so I think that, you know, there there was a lot of confusion at the beginning of the outbreak, but I don't think that that was necessarily any any one organizations or any one person's problem. Um. And you know that said, the World Health Organization was, has has throughout the process been incredibly helpful in the scientific community and allowing us to communicate and putting out really good, up to date information about what's going on around the world. So, yeah, so I think that it's 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 a pretty well, frankly, I think it's 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 a bit of a reckless move, and I think that and I think that we we could be paying for it um, in the future. So, yep. as <laughs> as an epidemiologist, that's what I think.
0: And I, I uh, this is mind-boggling to me. Just for the, just for the sake of looking at our own missteps. I mean, clearly we did some clearly huge missteps of just not even preparing, thinking that you know the administration feeling like this was just going to kind of, oh, when the when the when it warms up, everything will just go away and we'll just kind of ignore things. So we, we, and because of that, now we have all this collateral damage of now we're as a country being isolated and because of our missteps. And so it just seems like I, I it's it, it's mind-boggling to me as well. So. I'm not sure what what will happen. I'm hoping this is reversed in some way um, with with pressure, but uh, clearly uh, it doesn't. As as you said, Stephen, it affects us in an indirect way pretty pretty significantly. Mark, you have anything to chime in on that? Yeah, no, I think I, I
1: agree. I think there's you know, ap- aside from all the concerns about just where this came from, right, and um, in terms of like what it, what are the motivations for for this move. You know, be they political or kind of trying to reinforce our administration's somehow kind of control over the situation, or or role, or kind of rewrite the narrative around what we've done as a country. Um, I think so, so. Setting all of that aside, I think the biggest concern is the, is precisely that that this this is a global body that helps other countries that also will very directly impact. Us um, and so those those funds are important. They're you know they're they're crucial. And I think I don't know, Stephen. Do you have any any sense of what the operating budget is? We can, I'm sure we can look. But but you know the United States yeah. um, is a pretty big supporter of this orga- global organization. And so I think it's also right. just tough from a symbolic perspective. Um, and of course this plays into the politics of it, right, on some level. But from a sim- symbolic perspective, about our investment in these this sort of global community and and kind of our you know, togetherness as we're combating this common enemy. Uh, I, I think it's, it's a difficult messaging to, to have.
0: Yeah. And a few other things I saw in the news. One thing I saw here, it was a few days ago, maybe Sunday, Stephen, you, ch- you can chime in on this as well. Uh, I don't know where this came from. Maybe, you know, it's June 14th, uh, this big day of, uh, potentially no, uh, coronavirus deaths. This is a model again, again, clearly a prediction did you see anything about this? And what do you what do you think about this as a possibility? Or is this just kind of like uh, wishful thinking?
2: Yeah. So I actually, in the meantime, so we've, we've talked a little bit, I think, about this model before. It's the IHME model that's that's been posted online. And so it's the same one that they've been using to, to generate these forecasts. And okay. so a lot of places have been using this model. And I, I looked a little bit more sort of like under the hood, what's going on. And it turns out that in, unless they've made substantial revisions to it, the the, the model fundamentally is is sort of a, it's a statistical model that basically fits to previous data, but doesn't actually capture the ways that diseases spread in populations. You could fit it to basically any sort of time series of data that you could want. And so that means that it, it uh, as, as far as I can tell, it can't actually capture resurgences and in infection. And it, it's, it's, you know, susceptible to some issues where it's not actually keeping account of how many people are infected and contributing to onward transmission so, I mean, I think it is a model and it's, it's one that's, you know, very well like calibrated to past data and can be very good at making short term predictions. But, you know, that, that date you just mentioned is, is quite a ways into the future. And so I'd be pretty yeah. skeptical. It's, it's sort of like a weather model, right? It's like a weather model that's able to, to, to capture forecasts, you know, a few days, maybe even a week or two into the future. But I think that anything beyond that, you need something that's a little bit more, takes a little bit more sophisticated account of sort of what's going on. So that's not to say that that won't happen. You know, I think the, that there's a possibility, but, but I think that uh, there's reason to have a healthy dose of skepticism around that too. <laughs> sure. um,
1: do you think I'd be interested, Stephen, if you can, of talking just a little bit about some of these basic modeling um, like you, know, you, we've talked a lot about lots of different models. We've seen a lot of different models that are used in different ways. Um, and some of which kind of take initial conditions in different ways than others. Do you have like a quick, quick and easy primer, like a, you know, a 35 second, you know, how do we think about these different mathematical models and what's the type of modeling that you've, you've been doing and that you put a lot of stock in?
2: Yeah, so I think it's the the most important thing that to keep in mind about modeling that we always try to think about is that a model is always built for a specific purpose. It's um you always have to have a question in mind at the outset and then you build a model that allows you to help answer or sort of, you know, think about that question. One of the biggest dangers in modeling is that usually models Tell you a lot of other things that aren't related to that question, and that it wasn't built to help you answer. And usually, when you build a model, you build it such that you know it gives you sorts of like the it, it gives you insight into the conclusions that you want. But then, if you extrapolate and try to make conclusions about things that it wasn't built to tell you about, then you run into a lot of danger because just, it just wasn't calibrated to tell you those sorts of things. And You know, there's, there's a wonderful quote that many of you may have heard, which is that all models are wrong, but some are useful. And that's, that's like a (laughs) mantra in my field. Right. And so, and so the key thing is that like some models are useful for some things, but, but because they're a model, because they're this sort of like very rough um, depiction of, of, of reality, they are fundamentally wrong on some sense too. And so there will always be areas where they, they, they just sort of miss the mark. So now that said, um, within models in with in epidemiological models, there are sort of two sort of key like broad areas of models that we build. One of them is mechanistic, and that's the kind of model that I'm I'm largely interested in. Um, and those models, as the name implies, keep track of the underlying mechanism of disease spread. Basically, like how how does disease spread actually work? So you're keeping track of the proportion of the population that's susceptible, infected, and recovered, and these sorts of things and and thinking about like how the disease transmission process actually works and trying to formalize that knowledge as mathematical equations so that's one side on the other side there are uh, what i usually call Uh, phenomenological models or non-mechanistic models or sometimes you see them as like non-parametric there's a lot of different names that these things go by but basically what these models try to do is just look at underlying patterns in data and say based on what has happened in the past what could happen in the future and they usually don't pay nearly as much attention to like what is actually causing those patterns Um, they're just trying to replicate patterns that they've seen before going into the future and extrapolate them in ever more sophisticated ways so When you're making short-term predictions oftentimes that latter class of model the phenomenological models do a better job of giving you sort of short-term very detailed quantitative predictions with sort of the right accounting for uncertainty for what's going to happen in the immediate future but of course, that's predicated on the assumption that the future behaves like the past. What mechanistic models allow you to do is to see what could happen under widely changing circumstances, because we know sort of what's going on underneath the hood, and we can sort of extrapolate forward in a much more um, robust way. So so I think that's that's sort of the broad class of models. Mechanistic models really help us to understand processes and what's going on and to make sort of qualitative conclusions about, you know, what... like roughly how long are we going to need to do social distancing or like how does you know changing levels of infectiousness or changing levels of immunity affect the overall trajectory of the epidemic whereas the other models um sort of allow you to you know peek a couple of steps into the future and say like okay well like what do we need to do right now to avoid what could happen next week Thanks. Right. yeah
0: that's awesome uh i'm just curious do you uh steven like uh make decisions in your own life through modeling <laughs> <laughs> um Yes. And I would argue you do too. Um,
2: So uh, I think that, I think that, so fundamentally, I mean, we're all making, making our decisions based on, based on simplifications of reality, right? We, we sort of build these mental models of like, you know, we have this sort of sense of people's preferences, for example, and I'll, I'll take input, for example, of like, you know, what we had for dinner last night and sort of the expression on Allie's face. And, you know, and, and then we'll, you know, figure out, you know, like what's what's a good prediction of like what would be a good thing to make for dinner sure. tonight, right? And that, that's a mathematical model, right? We're making these probabilistic, assessments in our minds about like what's the most likely way that I can change my current reality such that it aligns with the reality that I hope to bring about in the future but now um, and I, I mean as, is that, yeah, is that, is that
0: model sorry we're gonna get into this because this is fun so the, <laughs> the one you just said with Allie and Dinner is that the second yeah. model right you're just taking like uh, past experiences and then is that the quick one or is that the mechanistic model you're using
2: well it depends on whether we've had a conversation about what her preferences <laughs> are or whether I'm making assumptions about that <laughs> so awesome. if she's told me what the parameters are, then I can extrapolate yeah, sure. forward for
0: years. <laughs> yeah, but- <laughs> totally. this is good stuff, people. Listen up. This is yeah, a good dating advice. That's right. Hey, yeah, no, that's yeah. right.
2: Uh, so, But but you also run into trouble if you try to r- code these things up and sure. make the decisions that way too. So Yeah, okay, yeah.
0: There's a PSA right now that, that although these are really helpful, that fundamentally, I think we all are unrepeatable. So we got to make sure we pursue that part and not turn that's them right. into mechanisms for success. I know right. that the hard way, guys. Uh, I think if there's one thing that marriage can do, it realizes that, oh, yeah, you can't just apply the way you do projects at work to relationships. So <laughs> that does not work very well. <laughs> That's right. Remember, all models are yeah, wrong. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Awesome. Oh man, no, thanks for that, Stephen. Uh, so let's let's get into a little bit of a few things before we we close up here. Uh, one more thing: that we saw in the news. I wanted Stephen again to, to chime in on this. I saw this, and it, it was pulled by a pretty big media outlet. Uh, this preliminary preprint study uh, on a potential extreme mutation. Uh, of the coronavirus, and the headline was this will this may make vaccines futile, which of course that just made me want to read this incredibly badly and with a lot of fear. So I just let again kind of the same thing with mathematical models and what you just provided. As a, as a consumer of news, how should I be be digesting this kind of material coming out, and how do I use my own? Uh, like judgment and decision-making on what I should invite in as being potentially credible and what could be deferred out a little bit.
2: Yeah. So let, let's, let's build ourselves a little mechanistic model of the scientific process then to try to answer this question. Then. I'm in, so, I'm in, let's do this awesome. thing.
0: I'm going to, I'm going to sit up straight for this. Right, okay, cool.
2: So, um, so as, <laughs> you know, as scientists, right, you know, we, we, we have ideas and we're, we're interested in sort of developing them, exploring them and then communicating them to the world. And so, so that's great. So there are a couple stages in that communication process that that then happens. So we sort of formalize our results. And then they increasingly recently, we often post our findings to these things called preprint servers. Um, so there are places where you can just post a PDF of your findings and they don't undergo any sort of peer review. There's no checks for accuracy, nothing like that. Basically, anyone can post anything that they want to to these things. And there, there's there's a little bit of vetting that's done to make sure that it's not just, you know, absolute And when I say absolute nonsense, I mean, like, absolute nonsense, like, 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 you know, just like random garbled text. Like my personal journal. (laughs) Like, just submit my personal journal. Well, you know, that might actually make (laughs) it because it's actually written in prose. I mean, (laughs) like, I think the threshold for posting these things is actually remarkably (laughs) low, you know. And so, and so, and, and, you know, that's, that's not to say that everything that's posted on here is, is, is. You know not useful either right like uh, uh, all of the things that we're seeing published in the journals coming out about coronavirus right now are posted to these servers so that the the process of research can go more quickly because this is a time when really time is of the essence right so fine but there's no sort of vetting of these things so peer review is a process by which these you submit your work to a journal, it gets sent out to other people in your field and these people go through and check your claims, try to reproduce some of your key findings and then determine whether or not it's credible. And that's that's what happens with the stamp of publication in a journal is that it's basically saying not only is this something that we found, but it's something that as a scientific community sort of the the experts in this area also think is is worth communicating and is something that we can trust. Right. So the article that you're referring to is is still in the preprint stage. It was just recently posted. And there are, I read through the article, and it's it, it makes some interesting claims. And I think, so basically, what it seems like they found was a single viral variant that had a mutation that affected the virus's ability to bind to the ACE2 receptor. And so the mutation that they found was in the part of the protein that that vaccines are most likely going to target. So that's that's true that this this is a mutation in that part of the protein. So they found this mutant in a single in, in, in a single sample. So as far as I can tell, there's a possibility that there was a sequencing error behind this as well. Um, although I'm not a virologist, so I don't know the possibility of that. But even assuming that all of the sequencing is correct, it seems like mechanistically what this would do is this would make this virus a lot less transmissible because ACE2 binding is required for the virus to spread. So there's a very good chance that even if this mutation did occur, it's unlikely that it would actually spread very far in the population before getting outcompeted by, you know, other coronaviruses, this sort of thing. So none of these things were really mentioned in the paper, but they did say that it could. And and the quote that you mentioned was actually stated in the in, in the paper's discussion. You know that that this could make vaccine research there's certain branches of vaccine research futile. So the last thing about our mechanistic model of the scientific procedure process is that, uh, you know, we're all trying to sort of communicate why our findings are relevant. And there's this huge incentive to sort of overstep those bounds. um, Because, you know, that's one of the things that sort of helps helps the work get attention and get published in this sort of thing. And so it takes a lot of, you know, a, a lot of rigor to sort of make sure that the claims that you make are are true and real and and within the bounds of reality without sort of overstepping those claims and there's uh you know we see sort of overstepping these claims also all the time in science especially in preprints because those are the sorts of claims that usually get knocked down in the review process and and you know questioned so i think the fact that this is a preprint and the fact that that sort of that, that quote was lifted without, you know, they didn't sort of mention any particular vaccines that were targeting any particular part of the protein. They were just saying this part of the virus could be mutating and therefore this could have an impact on vaccine research. And so I think that, you know, then that gets lifted and then gets amplified by a news source and then sort of ends up in the general population. We're already a couple steps removed from sort of rigorous science here. So... That's a very long sort of winded way to say that, that I think we need to have a lot of skepticism about these things. It's worth seeing where these where these sources are coming from. And I think that as, as we go through the peer review process, then we'll have a much better sense of what's happening here. But there are a lot of other sort of findings that suggest that yes, viruses mutate, this virus is mutating, but that may not be a particularly scary thing because we really have a lot of really good science about how that happens and the v- people developing vaccines know about this. Um, and we're doing our best to, you know, to to prevent the possibility that something like this could sort of completely disrupt our vaccine development process.
0: The gist of this, boiling it down into like 10 seconds, it's all about, again, living the real. Like, it's, it really is all about this. It's not just living the real psychologically, but even as scientists, right, to like live in the real uncomfort zone of not... uh <laughs> Providing, uh, you know, uh, conclusions that are disproportionate to the actual research, because not only does that harm science in general, but it it does if it gets picked up like a news outlet like me who doesn't have this. What am I supposed to do with this? And then it's just like this. It's like the It's like the WHO of removing the food from the actual science that it was grounded in.
1: Yeah, and and don't forget that at every step along the way, there are certain things that are incentivized, right? That it's it, there the relevance and kind of the bigness, um, the potential for this finding to be. Big and important and talked about is incentivized at every step along the way, um, and so that does create this pressure, background pressure for false inflation of claims uh, that may or may not be scientifically rigorous. And so, you know, we're in a we're in a time where we've created this news market that is, you know, everybody wants to know the the latest by the minute information because we want to know about this threat that we're facing altogether. Um, and just as you know that that just. Turns that up to eleven, you know, all the way that this this really, really is uh, hyperinflating some of the, the things, and it's and it isn't. You know, we can't have lower standards for good science in a time of crisis. Um, we just have to be all that much more
0: discerning. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, I mean, I, I this again, I guess, the call to just to. I, I was just thinking about as well that this is a call for both solidarity and 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 and, and all under the umbrella of humility. Uh that we this is the only way we're going to like really become virtuous out of all this stuff is uh, is humility and by the way, if you guys don't know what humility is uh some people are like, ah humility that sucks it doesn't it actually sucks actually pretty, it's pretty phenomenal. Humility is not like making yourself look like a worm that's not humility right <laughs> that's and, and and so basically humility is just simply stating the fact of who you are. And nothing less and nothing more. It's just really living in the real about yourself, not self-deprecating, ah, I'm not worth this, you know, and that's compliment or exaggerating. It's just simply stating the facts. So I think more than anything, we're being called right now uh, to live in a greater sense of solidarity and uh, 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 imbued by a greater sense of humility. I think we could all use a big dose of that. Um, As we land the plane, I want to hit this one article. I think I, I, I'm in love with the Atlantic uh, every time I read something by them, I don't know if it's the same person. I really enjoy it. And then it—it it is so funny, you guys. I'll read a few articles. I mean, I'm reading them all the time to try to find stuff for our, our episodes. Every once in a while, I'll like, oh, maybe every week or two, I'll find like, oh, my gosh, this is great. And it's hilarious because in those articles... I, I think maybe ninety six percent time Stephen's in it, and so I don't know if it's because I'm with you so much, I'm hearing you like kind of come out, even if it's not, even if you're not even quoted, like oh, I'm liking where this is going. I'm like, this is a really good, good direction, and then all of a sudden Stephen chimes in. I'm like, oh, that's why. So, so, so anyway, uh, Stephen was in this article again. And there was a quote. I want to start with this. It was a powerful quote. Uh, I've, I've heard this before. Maybe you have as well. So it, I, I'm pulling the quote directly from The Atlantic. Uh, uh, I forgot which one this was. Uh, the, I think it's called Our Pandemic Summer by The Atlantic. I'll put it in the show notes. It says, during the Vietnam War, uh, and if I butcher any of these names, I'm sorry, Vice Admiral James Stockdale spent seven years being tortured in, in a Hanoi prison when asked about his experience, he noted, that optimis- he, he noted that optimistic prison mates eventually broke as they passed one imagined deadline for release after another. Stockdale's strategy, instead, was to meld hope with realism, right? Again, this idea of uh, the only way to get through this is really embracing the real. The need for absolute, unwavering faith that you, could, th- that you can prevail, as he put it, with the discipline to begin by confronting the brutal facts, whatever they are. So I thought that was a powerful image of what we are facing. We are now at the point of no return. And what I mean by that is not in some kind of pessimistic, oh, this is terrible, but whatever it was two months ago will never be again. And I know some people really oftentimes can't stand that idea, right? They're saying, no, I've lost something, Right. But we have to also realize that whenever there's a loss, there's a great opportunity for new growth, and that's just the nature. I mean, why, why we have the seasons? I feel like to remind us that like the trees fall, the leaves fall, and they, in, in a real sense, they die for the sense that new growth can happen, right? And it's even greener than it was back in August. I come, you know, well, I would say now, but they're covered in snow, so I have no idea what they look like. But in a month, they'll be greener than they ever had been before, right? And this is the the, the step by which we need to take, that this is a place by which we need to enter, enter into a greater sense of solidarity, really striving hard not to tap into that suspicion, right? Using credible people, scientists, medical workers, Stephen, Mark, looking at the credible people and looking to them, as worthy people to listen to and not just whatever comes to your RSS feed, right? Um, And then allowing ourselves to, to have a real sincere hope but based in a realism that this is not going to be done in 3 weeks or 4 weeks but this is going to be a long haul. If you want to chime in a little bit I'll, I'm going to read this last part. You can chime in. This is from Stephen, this one part but this says over the coming months. This is about the future. What, what this is what I mean by the point of no return. Over the coming months, we need to normalize COVID in the public psyche, right? This is the change, the whole disposition of change that we need to undergo and reinforce that we will be part of our, that it will be part of our day-to-day lives. Uh, said, uh, sorry. Okay, sorry. I have to. I'm gonna, gonna redo this because I got this thing that we're gonna go into, we're gonna have to add money to actually keep going. So uh, I'll, I'll read this. So I want to. I want to read this one more. Uh, this this paragraph from uh, the Atlantic that has Stephen and have him riff on this for a little bit. Over the coming months, we need to normalize COVID in the public psyche and reinforce that this will be a part of our day to day lives, said Kissler, the Harvard disease mod- mod- modeler. Many people I've spoken with are aghast at the, at the thought. We thirst for a swift and decisive victory, but I'm reminded of images from World War II as people in London walk to work, briefcases hand against the backdrop of bombed-out buildings. I think we're in store for a similar period in history as we learn to make make greater peace with the world's chaos and our own mortality. Stephen, you want to chime in a little bit, talk a little more about that? What is? I mean, what are we embracing right now, and what what what's a good way by which we can approach this in more of like a realistic perspective instead of this kind of Trying to hold two worlds at the same time, which is even causing me kind of some friction.
2: Yeah, I think I mean I, I think that's a perfect way of describing it. That there's something about like this integration that we need, and that like this integration of of hope and realism, and just like recognition that we sort of just need to keep moving, um, with the fact that like things are things are really difficult right now. Um, I think that you know it's. Uh, we can. We can. Uh, part of the reason why why I think that these these images from World War II have really been striking to me right now is because I think that one of the places where we can look most for hope and the resilience of the human spirit is to history, and things that we've been through collectively as societies before, that can sort of give us a roadmap for how to act now. And you know, it's uh, it's you know, none of us none of us want to be in this scenario and and especially you know in in, as epidemiologists we've been looking at at all of these different scenarios that could play out and we're like gosh like none of these are really good you know it's like there there's you know there's hope on the horizon but like there's going to be this long period of time where we just sort of have to find a way to 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 keep moving and keep going with our lives and and so i think that that exactly like you said there's maintaining this realism sort of allows us to live and to live fruitful lives even if they're not necessarily optimal lives i think we we, re- mm. we we sort of enter into this trap of like wanting to constantly optimize our lives and like be you know be there's there's that quote of like be you know or the thing be your best self right live your, living your best life and it's like well you know it, First of all, I think that's sort of a, an imaginary concept anyway, right? Like there were, there's always going to be dependencies and there's always going to be sickness, uh, you know, whether it's psychological or physical, and there are always going to be these things to contend with. That's, that's just real, you know, that's, that is the human condition. And so what is it to live, you know, as, as you say so much, like what is it to live your real life? What is it for you to live your actual life? And what is that right now to just like really look at like, you know, what are the scenarios around me? And I'm intricately connected with all of the the people around me, the circumstances around me. And that's, that's, that's my reality. And what does that mean for me? And And you can learn about yourself that way. And you can learn about just sort of like how we can, how we can be in this time in a way that, that may not be Best in some sense, it may not be what we want, but it's true and it's real and it's it and it's 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 deeply ourselves. And that's really what we need. You know, that's that's what we're called to be anyway. So
0: that's great. And this it reminds me of just I saw the article and I've read the book. Have you guys read like Marie Kondo? Right, the 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 the, yeah. the organizing your kind of oh, it's, called, it's basically about decluttering, and she has a whole. Yeah. Set, I mean, it has a Netflix show on it, and she's go, you know just all over the place, right? This it's, it's I think it's called Marie. Her name is Marie Kondo. I apologize if that's not how you say her name, but I will. I'll check that. But this idea of uh, letting go of the past, and we'll end with this. That there's something there is there is something that's ending in our previous life, but there is a new beginning. And Marie Kondo does a great job of like how decluttering your house. is kind of like the same thing. It's like the coronavirus is is enforcing us enforcing this kind of mandate of decluttering our lives. And there's, there is a time where you have to let go. You have to let go of some of the stuff in your life that no longer is helpful. And we know this all in life. There are things by which we hold on to so intensely, right? Because of our own childhood as self-preservation. And then in a new life, which it's no longer needed, but yet we hold on to it and it causes harm in our relationships. We keep holding on to it in in a a pretty pretty big way. And so here we are at this new place by which I think we're being called to let go of some some things, both as individuals and as a corporate reality. And Marie Kondo is awesome because she has this, this, this idea of like, don't be sad about it. Like, look at the thing. She has like, literally every single item that you have in your house, which is going to take a long time in my house. That that uh, that you 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 hold it in your you ha- and you thank it for what it provided for you, right? And so this is like there's just a like, gratitude by what you have for the thing, and then you let it go to for, to give joy to someone else. And it does it no longer fits you. So I encourage you guys as well to to, to Marie Kondo this thing, right? To, to to embrace this something that needs to let go. Look at it and don't look at it since it's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I have to let this go. I'm so sad. Look at it and just be like, I'm so incredibly thankful this was in my life for X amount of time. I no longer need this. And now I have this new space in my life to do something different. Great. And I want to encourage you to that. And this is more than anything, a time to tap into what it means to be truly human. That's This is the biggest call. And we're being stripped of those things that, that are mechanistic, right? as Steve was talking about. Don't do the mathematical models in your dating relationship completely, maybe a little bit, but not completely, right? Um, but to, to really tap in what it means to be truly human, gratitude, the, the the idea of we're called to be a gift to another. And that, as Abraham said uh, in on Monday... That the idea of social distancing is really a wrong concept. That we're not trying to do- distance socially, uh, we're just distancing physically. But we're still called to be connected and to be a gift to another. So use this opportunity today to look at it. We are in this in the long haul. There is a change happening, but to embrace the change and those things that are in your life right now, let go of them because when you, until you let go of them, you're not going to look forward and see what's available for you right now. That's going to transform your life into something great. But do it Marie Kondo style. Give it, th- give it some gratitude. Give it to someone who actually needs it more right now and find yourself feel- feeling lighter and living more in the real. All right. Well, again, if you guys want to ask any questions, you got it with Stephen Kissler, S-T-P-H-E-N-K-I-S-S-L-E-R on Twitter. Me, M-A-T-T-B-O-E-T-T-G-E-R on Twitter as well. If you want to learn more about Living in the Real generally, I got my livingthereal.com website. Check it out. You can sign up for my newsletter. I've already redid the pod, uh, the, the blog. The, a podcast will be coming out soon in a week or two. Uh, so check that out, livingthereal.com. And again, if you can sign up to help us, as little as $5 a month will help us tremendously. That's patreon.com slash pandemic podcast. I hope you guys have an awesome remaining week and we'll see you next week. Take care. Bye-bye.